Amen. Praise the Lord. So we'll have uh, 75 uh, or more people gone next Sunday for the main camp. We'll have, I think there's over 100 ladies now going to the ladies retreat that'll come up a couple of weeks after that. I don't know how we will make it without them. And I think we can make it without the man camp guys. I just don't know how we'll make it without the ladies. But uh, so you be in prayer about that. If you have your Bible with you, turn to the book of Nahum chapter one. And I need to ask the question, what is awesome? Ridgemont High? I think not. Uh, You know, I kind of take issue with that word awesome being used in the trivial ways that it is today. So I looked it up. And awesome actually means to induce or to inspire awe. So, okay, then I look that up. Because awe means dread. Awe means profound fear. So a car is not awesome. God is awesome. And God inspires fear because fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom And fear of the Lord is knowledge of God, according to the book of Proverbs. And so what we have to look at today out of the prophet Nahum, I have never seen this discussed in any of the systematic theologies as an aspect of the character of God. And yet all 12 of these Old Testament apostles, out of all 12 of them, Nahum is the prophet that teaches us most about the awesomeness of God. So I just have to warn you in advance, you know, the old preacher said, every now and then, you've got to preach a sermon that nobody says thank you after the service. And this is that Sunday. And, you know, I don't do that because I like rejection. Trust me, that's not why I do that. But I do that because we need it. Um, I do that because Paul says uh, that I've got to preach the whole counsel of God. But you better take good notes today because you likely have never heard a sermon like this about God. Because when you leave Nahum, it's not like watching the Barbie movie. Okay, when you need leave Nahum, it's like you, know, you leave his lecture, it's like coming out of Oppenheimer. And You walk away silent and grieved, and you are smitten with what we have forgotten about how God controls everything he creates, but mankind invents things. AI, chat GPT, genetic engineering, atomic warheads, that really it goes entirely out of our control. Now, that does not mean that all of your life should be over, overpoweringly serious. But when it comes to God, you do not dink around. So we need this message today. And I'm going to say that we need it not only as adults. Obviously, we adults need this. But we need this for our kids. We need this for our college. We need this for our youth. We need this, this same understanding about God. So I want to enter the book of Nahum through the, kind of through the back door of some of Paul's words to the Thessalonians and to the Romans. So look on your handout at Romans 11, verse 22. He says, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. On them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. 
Uh, that's also what we're told to behold in the prophet Nahum from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. Look at verse 6. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense, to recompense, to give them what they deserve, to give them the payment that they deserve. Tribulation to them that trouble you, verse 9, them who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So these words of Paul, they console us, they comfort us, but they also correct us. Because number one, we behold God's blessing when we're walking in the Spirit. But number two, we behold God's judgment on those who deny God and those who cause trouble, cause us trouble. Now that is the impact of this prophecy that Nahum ought to have on you. That's the understanding you need to have in your life. His name itself means comfort or consoler. Now watch verse 1 of Nahum chapter 1. The burden of Nineveh. Okay, so he's, ta- he's going to talk about a revelation about the city of Nineveh, but this is a woe. This is, this is heavy truth here. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. So despite what the Pharisees tell Nicodemus, when they say, look, Jesus can't be the Messiah. I mean, go look for yourself in, in, the, in the prophets. There is no prophet that was ever raised up from Galilee. Hello, somebody. Nahum was. Nahum came from Galilee. His name is preserved in the city of Capernaum. And Jesus chose that city as his ministry headquarters and not for no reason. Why that city? Why not something else better situated with better communications and better, better connections to the outside world? Well, no, there was a message here because Kafar Nahum means village of Nahum, and now Jesus is standing in his place. But watch verse 15, because the object of his comfort is actually Judah, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feast, perform thy vows. How can I do that? Now, you'll notice punctuation in a King James Bible is always important. Now, I don't, I don't say that for any other version out there, not any of the other modern versions. Frankly, they often do not know what they're doing, but in a King James Bible, you've got a colon right there. Because it's going to tell you exactly why it is that good news is coming. Some gospel good news is coming to them. And they're going to be able to do all the things for God and worship they wanted to do. Why? Because the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He, that is the wicked. Okay, so the wicked here is not just wicked people in general. It is the wicked person in specific, and he is utterly cut off. So Paul applies this verse to gospel preachers, but the context of this verse is a messenger who's announcing the good news historically of Nineveh's overthrow. In the doctrinal or prophetic context, it is the good news. I mean, the Jews need to be comforted in the tribulation because it is at his second 
Advent that Jesus comes leaping mountain to mountain. We saw that, Micah 7, 12. We saw that, Joel 2, verse 5. It's talked about Psalm 10, verses 2, 4, and 15. And he comes leaping from mountain to mountain in order to destroy the wicked. Now, your Bible is filled with references in the Old Testament to the Antichrist in disguise. One of the 12 disguises he uses, one of the 12 names, is the wicked. And that is how you see him in verse 15. And Nahum is comforting them with the prophecy of their enemy's eventual destruction. And in doing that, he is echoing Jeremiah 23, 19 and Jeremiah 30, verse 23, because they are match meets to this verse right here. And yet God is also giving us a picture a picture in prophecy of the present latter times, 1 Timothy 4.1, and last days, 2 Timothy 3.1. So just like the Gentiles in Nineveh, they got 40 days to repent after Jonah's preaching. We saw that already. Well, we've had 2,000 years. I mean, we've had 2,000 years since the preacher from Galilee came the first time, just like they had 40 days when Jonah, who was also actually from Galilee, came and preached to them. But then after that, the Ninevites repented of their repentance. And in the tribulation, the Gentiles will go to even greater lengths of pride and cruelty than they did in Russia or the Third Reich. And so, verse 2 says that God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. So the wrath that was restrained in Jonah's time when Nineveh repented and the wrath that is restrained in the church age, the dispensation of grace, God is reserving his time and he reserves wrath for those who repent of righteousness and return to wickedness in a serious day and also after the rapture of the church when the day of God's grace is closed. So Nahum picks up where Jonah leaves off and look at verse 3. He repeats Jonah in verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger. But then he adds the other side of this truth in order to show you the perfect balance of God's attributes, which is going to make sure that your enemy is eventually destroyed. Watch, verse 3. And will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. So then, so watch again. Here we are again. Everything after that colon, it is not just marvelous metaphor like all the commentators say. It actually describes a literal second advent event. So the fact that there are two minor prophets that give us a class on this topic, both Jonah and Nahum, it shows you how Nineveh is a picture in Bible type of the way that God is going to destroy mystery Babylon the Great. Revelation 14, Revelation 16, Revelation 17 and 18. In other words how he will deal with this present evil world. Now, what does that mean for you today? 
Well, here's our thesis for today's study. God made provision in the cross of Christ. God made provision to forgive sin repented of, but he will not condone sin persisted in. I mean, he made provision for the whole world, but the whole world doesn't get saved because a lot of the world rejects that provision. Galatians 6 verse 7 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth. Now, Paul is writing to born-again Christians in churches in Galatia. He says, whatever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Watch, for he that soweth to his flesh, you walk after the flesh, shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit, if you walk in the Spirit, you shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. You know, and we get the idea that the Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus of the first coming, and the, and the offer of the kingdom, somehow he permanently extinguished the divine wrath of God. And he extinguished the severity of God's infinite holiness against sin. And so what happens is we witness common mass murderers who rule nations today, and we want to rob God of his wrath while we wink at their cruelty. Oy vey. God never violates his own principles. God has never modified his principles of justice or his character of righteousness from what we see here in the book of Nahum. So despite what an Andy Stanley or someone else may tell you, Jesus did not somehow tame the God of the Old Testament. His hand will one day bring all nations into judgment. So the value of the book of Nahum, it's just two things. It shows us the awesome wrath of God at the second advent, and it proves that God will eventually destroy our enemy. Now the world is our enemy. Our flesh is our enemy, but the devil is our enemy. So we need this message of Nahum because we Americans have lost sight of the awesomeness of God. Our sports teams are awesome. Our media personalities are awesome. Our movie stars are awesome. Our cars we drive are awesome. Some motorcycle is awesome, but God is not awesome. And so we're just like Nineveh in our fake security and our false spirituality and our inward corruption and our cruel injustice that still exists in our system. But mainly we are Nineveh who has repented of her prior repentance. Who in the first and second great awakening and under the crusades of Billy Graham kind of accepted the message of Jonah. That message that said that we will face judgment if we are not born again. And a lot of people got born again. But now we are marked by this hypocritical intolerance of multiple spiritualities, you know, all of the others leading you to a destination that God never planned for you in eternity. And this shows up in every year of our lives, and it shows up in our society, because here's our first point for study. Too many Christians call Jesus their Savior but refuse to live for him as Lord. They're not going to be on the battlefield for the Lord. One of the last things Jesus says to the apostles is, this world is going to hate you. You will be hated of the world. 
And yet we have entire counseling centers set up so that we don't have to feel hated by anybody. But you know what? God will not violate his own principles, not even for you. So the first passage of this prophecy is the most important for us because it describes the awe-inspiring character of God's anger. And there are six Hebrew words for anger that are just packed into the space of just three verses between verses 1 to 6. So if I'm going to declare the whole counsel of God, Acts chapter 20, verse 27, I have to give you a sermon you ain't going to thank me for afterwards. And yet it's the best thing for you and your kids. And one that I bet you have never heard and won't hear anyplace else. So the awesome right wiseness of God's righteousness, this is the doctrine of God's anger because God's anger balances out God's love according to his holiness. So when judgment appears, it makes right or righteous all the injustice that occurred before it. Not an ounce more, not a gram less. Number one, first word is jealous in verse two, and that's the word of emotional intensity because it always starts there, doesn't it? And this is the subjective experience as to what God feels inside himself. Number two, revengeth in verse two. So with God, it's not just retaliation. It is a just punishment, and it is something that occurs occurs surely and with certainty And if the word jealous is God's subjective reaction, then the word avenge is his, revenging is his objective and intentional response as it moves from his emotions being affected to a calculated act of his will. Number three, furious, verse two, and that gives you the temperature because this is God's anger as a fever. It's also translated hot displeasure. And then the word wrath appears in italics in verse 2 in order to give you an accurate explanation in the English of exactly what God is reserving, even though the word is not used there in that verse in Hebrew. Number four, anger, verse 3. Anger is when you flare your nostrils. So God moves from emotion to decision to burning to hard breathing to number five, indignation in verse 6. And that is God's displeasure at your sin and your cruelty and your injustice. So much so, he is now foaming at the mouth. And Nahum employs all these terms in order to convince you of just three things. Your wounds, your woundedness, your heart wounds will be righteously righted. Your wrongs that you've done to others will be punished either in Christ on the cross or in your soul in hell. And third, this present evil world system will be righteously judged at Christ's second coming. Number six, fierceness, also in verse six. This is the burning of anger, also translated by the James gang as sore displeasure. And this adds to the intensity and to the integrity of every other word in this list. So all of these things are employed to get you to fear the Lord, to know God. How do you know God? How do you know God? I mean, I know there are a lot of books out there you can get with somebody's idea or imagination or what they thought they heard or God, you know, spoke to them versus look, actually looking in the Bible. But what does the Bible actually say? Proverbs 2, verse 5. 
Proverbs 9, verse 10. You get to understand God by his holiness. So Nahum sees exactly what God is going to do to you if you do not get saved. He sees what God's going to do to your enemies if they do not repent. And he sees what God is going to do to the Antichrist and to the nations killing the Jews in the seven years after the rapture of the church, which time we call the tribulation. So for every innocent child that is killed, God's angry just like you. Now, he doesn't act like you, but he's angry like you. And he doesn't act in your time frame because he acts perfectly, but he's angry just like you. Only his anger is going to result in righteous vengeance. So this is not just prophetic rhetoric where Nahum is venting his personal grievance against the Assyrians. It is not some psychotherapeutic prophecy where Nahum is attributing to God the feelings that are in his own heart. No, this is a systematic theological description of the wrath of God. So let me unpack this overpacked passage because this paragraph falls into two portions. Uh, first, there's a threefold description of the anger of God, and next, there's an exposition of that threefold description. The I am name of Jehovah appears three times in verse two. Now, you can see this for yourself in the King James Bible because. The, the King James translators always put the word LORD in all caps or in small caps wherever they were translating the name Jehovah. Likewise, it occurs three times in the next six verses to the end of verse 8. So verse 2 is the proclamation. Verses 3 to 8 are the explanation. And you've got to line up the explanation with the proclamation in order to understand Nahum's theology of the anger of God. Look at verse 2. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. And in that declaration, Nahum tells you, and this is our second point for study, he tells you how God's passion precedes his action. God so loved the world that he gave... His only begotten son, John 3, 16, he gave him up to the cruelty of our humanity. He gave him up to die on the cross. And that way you would not have to face the wrath. And instead you can have everlasting life by believing on him right now, even today. So here in verse 3 is the exposition of the first verse 2 description. He is jealous and he revenges, but, verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger. That's the exposition. So he he is jealous and he will revenge, but he's slow to do that. Wow, verse 2, the Lord revengeth and is furious. So now Nahum makes the same point, but he flips it. So it's reverse order. He's jealous, that leads him to revenge, but as he revenges, that leads him into more fury. So he tells us about the passion leading God's righteous action, and then the resulting action leading to more passion, and then look at the second exposition of that, which you find down in verse 6. 
So the Lord revengeth and is furious. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can abide the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him, particularly the, the rocks that the wicked are hiding behind in Revelation 6, verses 15 and 16. And then in the final analysis, watch this third description in verse 2. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. So from that declaration, Nahum tells you how the wrath of God, both its passion and its action, is exercised with discrimination. So it is never expressed. God never expresses his wrath like the devil gods of the Canaanites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks and Romans, the Mayans, the Hindus, and all the other false religions today. He never expresses it capriciously, even in Roman Catholicism. When something bad happens, you don't know why exactly. You just figure you have offended God. And, you, and, and the church tells you what to do, and you go in, and you never know when you've done enough. You do ceremony, sacraments, rituals. You never know when you've done enough. Well, somebody dies, and I'm going to have the priest say a mass for them to get them out of the purgatory. All right. How many masses you think you're going to need? Well, you know, he's kind of this bad. I think I need this many. Oh, all right, really? You know that? Well, I can, you know, do a novena to St. Jude and print it in the paper, and okay, that's capriciousness. Verse 3, the Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Now wait, this is not your father's world yet. Right now, Satan is the god of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, and Satan is capricious. He kills humans indiscriminately and uses humans as a lasting life, even though he sacrificed the infinite life of his own son for them. So now just link this up with the third exposition in verse 7. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. He reserveth wrath for his enemies, but, verse 7, exposit on that name, well, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. Why? Because he knoweth them that trust in him. Hallelujah. Because here's our third point for study. God's action growing out of passion is always governed by Bible principles, and he never violates his own principles. And in the case of you and me, our wrath becomes the master that drives us. But in the case of God, he is the master of wrath, and he uses it perfectly. So perfect that when you look for the city of Nineveh today, all you find is a footnote in a dictionary or an encyclopedia that says, well, see the map on page 128. Well, I want you to survey Nahum's three chapters with me real quick. Chapter 1 asserts the certainty and then of his overthrow. Chapter 2 depicts the siege and the capture of the city. Chapter 3 tells of their wickedness that provoke God's wrath. So Nineveh's doom is declared in the first chapter. It is described in the second chapter. It is justified as deserved in chapter 3. Three strikes, and Nineveh 
as a picture and Bible type of the kingdom of the Antichrist is out. Historical Babylon was in modern Iraq. Old Babylon was Rome on its seven hills. But mystery Babylon is our empire of trust as it is co-opted by the Antichrist after the rapture of the church. Now, economically, certainly it is, as we have a one-world currency. It's called the American dollar. And in the religious sense, America's majority Catholic, I mean, from our Supreme Court to our most popular cable news. So here is Nineveh. Its walls are 10 stories high, y'all. I mean, 10 stories high and wide enough to ride three chariots abreast. So I mean they got one lane going one way and one way coming the other way and a turning lane right in the middle. I mean it was great. The population could be calculated to be about a million souls in Jonah's time. So that would have been those inside the city and the surrounding suburbs. And Nahum is prophesying 150 years later whenever the repentance under Jonah was long repented of. And this is a potent description for us of our present evil world, Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. Because its vastness is only eclipsed by its vileness. And so in the first seven verses of chapter 3, Nahum drags out for us to look at the incredible violence and the murder and the witchcraft and the whoredom and the corruption that goes on inside that harlot city. And it's also a prophetic, potent preview of the great whore that rides on the beast in Revelation 17, verses 1 to 6. And the word that God gives her is at the end of verse 14 in chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse 14. Here's the word that comes out to Nineveh. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee that no more of thy name be sown. Out of the, why? How's that going to stop? Because out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image and the molten image. I will make thy grave for thou art vile. Now the apostle Paul likewise gives a description of the Lord Jesus that matches the description of God we see here in the book of Nahum. Look at 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 and 8. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. Well, that's comforting. That's, that's consoling. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, Alan, you know, that sounds really harsh. I mean, it's hard to see how that even sounds New Testament-y. But the reason it, sound, the reason it is New Testament-y, and, and what we may not understand yet in American society, but most of Christianity understands across the rest of the world, the Thessalonians were persecuted Christians. I mean, they were tying Thessalonians. They were tying Thessalonian believers to the backs of chariot. Now, if you are from the South, you might understand this. I mean, not you, but your parents would. They, they tied Christians to the back of chariots and drugged them through the streets. Okay, if, that, if that's what's happening, then this is, you really, this is really comforting to you. I mean, you can stand by this. 
you can understand how you can wait on God to perform his righteous judgment because it'll work. So can I just ask you three questions in the face of all of this, and then we'll close. Number one, why does God act in vengeance? Number two, when does he act in wrath? Number three, how does God act in judgment? Get Nahum chapter one, your left hand, Nahum three in the right hand, because the answers are all given right here in Nahum's prophecy. And the answers reveal the reason, the principle, and why does God act in thee? that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Historically, that was Sennacherib, as described by the prophet Isaiah. So it is the fundamental sin of Assyria, but also the sin by which Lucifer fell, personal pride, which dared to imagine evil against God, a wicked counselor instigating a a cosmic coup d'etat. So... Pair that up with chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. So, you know, who, who are the prey? Well, the prey are the Jews. The Antichrist after the Jews. Jesus warns them ahead of time. Matthew chapter 24, he warns them about Revelation chapter 18, verse 4. And he tells them in advance. Look at it on your handout, Matthew 24, 15. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet and spoken of here by Nineveh, by Nahum. What is it? It is the graven image. It is the molten image set up in the temple so that the Antichrist gets you to worship him as God. When you see that stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come back down to take anything out of his house there in Jerusalem. Neither because they will, if they do, they'll become the prey of the Antichrist. Neither let him which is in the field return back to the city to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight not be in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day, for then shall be great tribulation. Because the Antichrist will make Jerusalem a bloody city. And you will be the prey if you do not get out. And those two sins, by Assyria and by the Assyrian, call down the wrath of God from heaven, the Godward sin of rebellion, and the manward sin of cruelty and oppression and tribulation on God's people. So Nahum shows us what conditions are going to be like at the second coming of Christ, where Syria and the Assyrian has their sin judged. Number two, when? When does God do that? Well, the answer reveals the principle of divine judgment and the answer is actually in the last in chapter 3. The bruit of thee, which means the reported rumor of your destruction. Well, all of them shall clap the hands over thee. For upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually? And that wasn't true of the Assyrians. And the Babylonians conquered them. They did not conquer the Babylonians. But that statement will be completely true of the Antichrist in the tribulation. So this is declared to Nineveh 150 years after Jonah. So when, to get back to the question, when does God act in wrath? The answer, after long patience, 
and ample opportunity to repent and stay repented. In other words, a complete ministry of reconciliation. And in our case, it's been 2,000 years since they crucified Jesus. While John 3.36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. Notice the colon in that verse. Because if not, then he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. I mean, what has God got to do to get us to understand that? And we can see natural uh, climate events and calamities and those type things and say, well, okay, it's a cursed earth and and even nature is groaning, and we, we, we see that. But do we, do we really understand the wrath of God abiding on someone who's not born again? Number three, how does God act in judgment? For this, I want you to go back to chapter two, back one chapter, because this answer reveals the method by which God judges, and that answer is discovered in the state of Nineveh today. Chapter two, verse 10, she's empty and void and waste. Modern day Mosul is no match for what ancient Nineveh used to be right across the banks of the Tigris River. And as we mentioned in Micah chapter 5, the most unanswerable argument for the inspiration of Scripture is its multitude of fulfilled prophecies. Like verse 6, the gates of the river shall be opened, and the palace shall be dissolved. So Nineveh ended up being besieged by a coalition. It was a coalition of Babylonians, Persians, Medes, Egyptians, Armenians, and Bactrians under Nabopolassar. And they besieged Nineveh for two years. You know what? They might still be there today. Except there was a unique flood of the Tigris River. And it carried a huge section of the rampart away. And through that gap, the enemy infiltrated the city and captured the palace. And so completely was Nineveh destroyed that skeptical scholarship and critics of the Bible, all the way up to the 17 and 1800s, doubted the Bible's account that an ancient city named Nineveh ever even existed. I mean, just like they still doubt Noah and they still doubt David's kingdom. But in 331 BC, Alexander the Great fought the Battle of Arbella nearby. He didn't even notice Nineveh was there. In 1845, two Englishmen started to dig up a city that even Napoleon did not notice, even though he marched his troops right over those mounds. Until that moment, Nineveh was a myth just like the unicorn. And that's exactly how God will judge this present evil world system. We won't even be able to remember what it was like. We will be be so free. I mean, so much so. If you look at 2 Peter 3 on your handout, the Apostle Peter states, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, just like Nahum chapter 2 verse 6 says. Seeing Nahum 2.6, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting 
hasting unto the coming of the day of God. Are you running toward the rapture or are you running away from it? Are you running toward God as it gets closer? Are you running away? The consistency of God teaches you that the gates of heaven will be opened and a flood is coming. And that flood of fire, as we come down on horses of fire, will dissolve the palaces of the beast, the dragon, his seven heads, his ten horns, Revelation 12, verse 3. And for that reason, there are four awesome revelations out of Nahum. The first two concern God. Look at number one. To believe in God's love is to be certain of God's wrath. I mean, if God's never angry, God doesn't really love. If you never get angry, well, I guess you don't really love. Because even you cannot look at wrong and look at oppression and look at injustice and remain unmoved. Number two, God's wrath must always be interpreted in light of his love and the fact that he is magnifying his word. That he's not going to set aside his principles and violate them for you. So his active judgment on this present evil world proves the depth of his love to humanity and his commitment to keep Christ's promise that if you believe on him today, he will give you everlasting life. And his wrath on the world and the Antichrist will prove the depth of his love for the Jews and his commitment to fulfill all, fulfill all his promises to them. There's also a revelation concerning humanity in this book. Number three, Nahum reveals that sin against which the wrath of God prevails. I want us to end in chapter one. Go back to chapter one of Nahum. Because whether national, social, or individual, God acts in judgment against your pride which neglects him and rejects him and offends him. And yet he's patient, he is long-suffering, and he waits, he waits on you to accept his offer of mercy right now. But there is a final revelation in Nahum about absolute justice, and this is number four, because God's wrath discriminates between the saved and the lost, those who are his children and those who are not. Look at verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. And that, is, that is hard truth for the hard-hearted, and that is hard preaching from a hard prophet. But God's wrath eventually destroys his enemies. And yet it passes over those who trust in him, just like Passover night, Exodus 12, verse 23. And because of God's awesome character, you better take him seriously. Come to terms with Christ's claims on your life. His death on the cross paid for your sins, but it also purchased your life. And you belong to Jesus today. And all you have to do is pray. Just pray to trust in him. We need to instill this attitude in the hearts of our kids. Two things. Take God seriously. Fear him reverently. 
And if we're going to talk about having expanded facilities to facilitate expanded ministries, then let's get it all together now. Nahum's tough. Next time we're in the Minor Prophets, so in two weeks from today, October 1st, it's going to be Habakkuk. Uh, I can take a totally different line with Habakkuk because October 1st will be our pre-Go Conference sermon, which starts on October 8th. So I'm going to prepare us all for that on the 1st because the Go Conference theme is stirring up vision and faith. You need to stir up the gift, stir up what God's given you. And Habakkuk tells us, it'll show you how to become a person of vision and faith. But right now, we need to respond to Nahum. A hymn writer who is like the prophet Nahum, Francis Havergal says it best, I think, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. And she could write that because she understood God is awesome. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Lord, our awesome God, you have every right to take. I mean, you have every right to take. You have every right to take it all because it's all yours. You created it. Nothing is ours except our own souls, not even our life. So God, we bow before you today in reverent praise. And we lay our souls, we lay ourselves before you in both fear and trust. Our only hope today is your free grace. And it's free because of what Christ did on the cross to pay for it. And we access it by faith in him. So if you've not yet received that, will you just pray right now? Will you just pray your heart to God, knowing that he hears you? Just pray and say, God, save me for Jesus' sake. I'm not worth it. He is. I cling to him. I claim what he has done. I trust in his finished work on the cross. I want his righteousness. I'm, I'm going to stop trying to manufacture anything on my own. I may not be as bad as somebody else. I may be better than a lot of people, but I'm not good enough. So God put me in Christ, put the Holy Spirit in me, and make me born again. Give me everlasting life today, just like you promised, as I trust in Jesus. Here, Jesus, I give you my life.